This is Geology Bites with Oliver Strumple. In previous Geology Bites episodes, we've talked about using the radioactive decay of uranium to lead within a zircon crystal to infer the age of a rock. But the decay process also produces another product, helium. Being a gas and much more volatile than lead, the helium diffuses out of the zircon crystal even after it crystallizes. So while the lead becomes trapped within the zircon as soon as it forms within a cooling magma at 900 degrees centigrade, the magma has to cool all the way down to 200 degrees before the zircon can stop the helium that is produced from leaking out of its crystal lattice. By looking at different decay products of uranium, we can measure how long ago the rock cooled to the temperature at which each product became trapped in a mineral crystal and so obtain multiple data points of the rock's cooling history. Becky Flowers is a professor of geological sciences at the University of Colorado, Boulder. She has a thermochronology lab in which she measures the amounts of the different radioactive decay products within crystals to figure out the cooling history of rocks. Knowing how rocks cooled gives us new insights on geological histories and processes of many parts of the Earth, and even of the moon. Becky Flowers, welcome to Geology Bites. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Why is it so valuable to decipher the thermal histories of rocks? What can we learn that other observations don't tell us? So thermal histories can yield really important constraints on the timing, duration, and rates of a whole array of Earth processes because so many of these processes are either temperature dependent or influence temperature. So for example, these include burial, erosion, magmatism, metamorphism, and deformation. So I could just give you one example for erosion. So because temperatures increase with depth beneath the Earth's surface, a rock sitting at three kilometers deep in the Earth is at warmer temperatures, it's hotter, than a rock sitting at the surface. So as rocks approach the Earth's surface, due to removal of overlying rocks by erosion, that rock will cool off. So if we can reconstruct the cooling history of that rock, that's a proxy for the erosion history of that rock. And that in turn can give us some insights into bigger Earth processes, such as when a mountain belt was elevated or when a big canyon like the Grand Canyon was in size. Um, And that in turn can give us some insights into the processes that might have caused those events. Okay, before we talk about the applications of thermal chronology to various geological problems, I want to ask you about the methods themselves. In the classic dating of zircon crystals, the daughter nuclide whose abundance is measured is lead. But in your lab, you concentrate on a very much lighter and more volatile daughter nuclide, helium. Why is that? Yes, when a date constrains mineral cooling rather than the crystallization age of a mineral, we call this thermochronology. And the technique that I use, uranium-thorium-helium, is based on the decay of uranium and thorium to helium. So when in uranium and thorium, they also undergo a long decay chain to lead. And in that process, they have a bunch of alpha decay events. And those alpha decays generate alpha particles, which are helium atoms. And so in our technique, rather than dating the lead atoms, we date the parent uranium-thorium as well as the helium atoms. In the case of the uranium-lead method in zircon, the lead, when it's produced, is stuck in the crystal ever since it's produced. 
So if you date a crystal of zircon with uranium lead, you're essentially dating the crystallization age of that mineral. In contrast, in the case of helium, helium is an element that is prone to diffusion out of the crystal. So although if your zircon crystallizes and it's undergoing decay and generating helium atoms, if that zircon is at elevated temperatures in the crust, that helium will completely diffuse out of the crystal. So if you went and were able to date a crystal sitting down in the earth at 600 degrees C, you would get a zero age for that crystal because there's no helium retained in it. And so it's only after that mineral has cooled through a certain temperature known as the closure temperature and begins retaining helium that it begins to retain that daughter. And so if you go and date that mineral in a cooling only scenario, you date the time that that mineral last cooled through its closure temperature. And that closure temperature is much lower than the closure temperature of the lead because the helium diffuses out so much more easily that if you like the crystal lattice has to kind of close up a whole lot more to stop it leaking out. Yeah, that's exactly the idea. And you can go and work on a single crystal of zircon and you can get a uranium lead date and date its crystallization age. Let's say it's 100 million years ago. And then you could also get a uranium thorium helium date for that same crystal. And it might be a younger date that might tell us that that rock cooled and was exhuming and eroding to the surface much more recently. What minerals are suitable for the uranium thorium helium thermochronology that you do? One of the reasons why this technique is so versatile is that pretty much any mineral that has trace amounts of uranium and thorium in the crystal structure has the potential to be used as a uranium thorium helium thermochronometer as long as it's retentive to helium. So most studies have used apatite and zircon because these are very common minerals in many rock types and they constrain thermal histories at upper crustal and near surface conditions. And so they're very useful for constraining near surface erosion histories. But there are a variety of other minerals that people are developing as helium thermochronometers. And there's a bunch of reasons for this. One thing is that if you have lots of different minerals that you can date from a single rock, and these different minerals have different closure temperatures, this allows you to reconstruct really high resolution thermal histories. The second thing is that different rocks have different minerals in them. So it's useful to have tools that allow us to reconstruct thermal histories in a whole range of rock types. And then the third thing is that commonly there's a desire to date processes that are notoriously difficult to date, like weathering, which occurs at the Earth's surface and is climatically driven. And there are some minerals that we can date with helium that allow us to constrain some of these difficult to date earth processes. And what are some of these other minerals apart from zircon and apatite? The iron oxides, hematite and gertite, because those are commonly weathering products. So they develop, for example, in soil profiles. So in that case, if you have a mineral that develops at the earth's surface and you date it, you might be constraining the time at which that mineral formed and be dating a weathering event. Sometimes those minerals form on fault surfaces. And so there's a lot of innovative work that some groups are doing to constrain the timing of fault movement by dating hematite on these fault surfaces. There are also other minerals like perovskite and badleyite that occur in rocks that are mafic rocks, iron and magnesium rich rocks that are otherwise difficult to date. There's probably like 20 or 30 different minerals that people have tried to date with this tool with varying success and some of them show a lot of promise. I know that a big part of your research effort is directed to improving the thermochronology methods, not only to extend them to a wider range of source rocks, but also to make the results more reliable and perhaps more precise. Can you tell us what the main challenges are 
that you face when you try and do that? Yeah, so I think one of the big challenges that workers in this field are addressing right now is trying to better understand how helium diffusion occurs in different mineral phases. So as I was just talking about, you have this helium that's generated, and then it diffuses out of the crystal. And in order to interpret those data quantitatively, you need to know the conditions under which the helium diffuses out of your mineral. In some minerals, like apatite and zircon, the diffusivity of helium out of your crystal, how fast it goes out, is a function of not only temperature, which is what we just talked about, but things like radiation damage. So as helium is generated, it's generated by radioactive decay and that process damages the crystal and that affects the retentivity of your crystal. Also crystal size can affect the retentivity or the diffusivity of helium out of your crystal. And so there's a lot of work focused on trying to understand these different mineral characteristics that control the loss of helium and to quantify those into models so that we can have kinetic models that we can use to decipher the significance of our dates. I guess in the idealized case, you'd have a function which would give you the diffusivity as a function of temperature, radiation damage, and crystal size. Yes, that's exactly what you want. That's exactly what you want. But isn't it also further complicated by the fact that when you get a rock sample into your lab, you're actually looking at the time integration of all the diffusion out of that crystal over the geological time. So how, how do you, that's another issue, isn't it? Yeah, so if you have proper kinetic models, you can deal with that. But that's a great point. One simple way that we think about it is that if you have a fast cooling history at temperatures above the closure temperature, your helium is completely lost from the crystal. Okay, and below that temperature, your helium is completely retained. And that's if you have like a fast cooling history and that's envisioning the system is like a light switch. It's either on or it's off. But in reality, it's not like that. It's like a dim switch. So there's actually a temperature range over which your helium can be partially retained in and partially lost from the crystal. So if you have a simple scenario, let's say you're sitting in the Himalayas and there's a granite that was emplaced five million years ago and then it gets rapidly eroded and brought to the surface, that's pretty simple. Your date is simply going to record when that rock was eroded and got to the surface. However, because of this temperature window over which helium is partially retained and partially lost, you can have much longer histories that involve erosion to the surface, reburial, and then erosion back to the surface. And over that entire history, your crystal may be gaining helium and then losing a little bit and then regaining it. And so this requires then thinking about some of these so-called dates that we obtain for our minerals actually are something a reflection of the total time integrated history of helium accumulation and diffusion out of your crystal. These require quantitative models. And increasingly, our field is pushing towards looking at deeper time histories to infer burial and erosion histories over longer timescales. And that's something that my group does quite a bit of work on. Let's talk now about some of the geological problems that you've addressed using thermochronology. Let's start with the great unconformity. Yeah, the great unconformity. So this is an iconic geologic feature. It marks a major gap in the geological record of the continents. So it classically marks this knife sharp boundary in the rock record between unfossiliferous Precambrian rocks, so much older rocks, 
and fossiliferous layered sedimentary rocks. And across that boundary at the Great Unconformity, there's commonly a half billion years up to like three billion years of missing time. The Great Unconformity was originally described at its famous Grand Canyon locality by John Wesley Powell. But this feature occurs all over the U.S. You can go out and see it at all kinds of locations around the United States. And it also occurs all around the world. And to Charles Darwin, he talked about the sudden appearance of complex macroscopic fossils in the Cambrian strata above the Great Unconformity is suggesting some kind of singular global event that led to the development of this feature and this missing gap in time. And so erosion across this feature, it's played a big role in ideas about the Cambrian explosion of life. Some people have tried to develop a causal link between major erosion across the Great Unconformity and the Cambrian diversification of life. We actually don't really know how old it is, so we know the age of sedimentary rocks that sit above this feature, but until recently we haven't been able to constrain the timing of the erosion event that led to the development of that erosion surface. And that's exactly because this feature marks this huge gap in the rock record. So the erosion history that led to its development, you can't investigate that directly by study of preserved rock units. So this is something then that we can tackle with thermochronology. A number of models have been proposed for when and why the Great Unconformity developed. So some models have suggested the Great Unconformity formed right at the timing of the Cambrian explosion, and others, well, it occurred 500 million years before that. And so if it occurred four or 500 million years before that, it probably doesn't have a direct causal link. And so to actually try to understand did Great Unconformity erosion contribute to the Cambrian explosion, we actually need to better determine the timing. And then another big question is, did the Great Unconformity develop in one singular massive erosion event, for example, caused by something like Snowball Earth, or did it form at different times in different places and have multiple causes? For example, maybe there are tectonic drivers in different locations that ultimately led to development of a feature that looks the same everywhere, but it actually has a time-integrated history that with multiple erosion events that amalgamated to form this geologic gap in the record. How do you go about dating that erosion surface then? You go and you can collect samples from right below the Great Unconformity, and the minerals in these rocks immediately below the Great Unconformity can retain the thermal history of that erosion event that led to the development of that feature, even if the rocks <laughs> that were eroded are now gone. So just below the great unconformity erosion surface, you pick out a mineral and you see when its closure temperature dropped pretty much close to what you'd expect on the surface. I don't know, 20 degrees, 10 degrees, something like that. And that age tells you when that surface was last exposed. Is that the idea? That's the idea. Yes. Yeah. It can be more complicated than that because there's all kinds of stuff that happened since then that you also have to see through in order to get back at that erosion event. But that is the basic idea. Wow. I can see how that could be really powerful. And so what have you been able to discover about the age of the Great Unconformity? Yeah, so we've been working on the Great Unconformity in different locations, and it's clear that the 
timing of the last major exhumation event that led to that development of the great unconformity erosion surface varies regionally. So for example, here in Pikes Peak, Colorado, we have data that constrain the development of that surface to before 700 million years ago. Whereas in the central Canadian shield, our data very clearly say that that feature formed there after 600 million years ago. So it appears that the great unconformity can't be attributed to a singular sort of global event, but rather that it formed heterogeneously at different timing and possibly with different tectonic causes in different places. And so this makes it more difficult to tie it directly as a very specific and direct cause of the Cambrian diversification of life, although there still may be indirect links to environmental and biologic change in this interval. The Great Unconformity is very conspicuous, as you mentioned, in the Grand Canyon. Has your work helped us figure out the erosion history there? Barra Peak, a PhD student working with me, acquired euthorine helium data for minerals and rocks right below the Great Unconformity at various locations within the modern Grand Canyon. And she's coupled that data with a variety of geologic constraints. And a key point here is the history that she's deciphering related to Great Unconformity development occurred hundreds of millions of years before the Grand Canyon itself was in size. So the Grand Canyon is in size there now and allows us to see the Great Unconformity and to go sample it. But the history that we're inferring doesn't have anything to do with the Grand Canyon carving itself. But her work reveals that there was likely paleotopography across that region in the 800 million year to 500 million year time frame that was developed due to faulting associated with assembly and breakup of the Rodinia supercontinent. And so her data suggests, for example, that there was a high, a paleo high, in what is now the western part of the Grand Canyon, and a paleo low in what is now the eastern part of the Grand Canyon, such that the paleo high in the western part might have been shedding sediments to the area to the east. And so in these faults in the Grand Canyon have been known for a long time to have a history of repeated reactivation. And so our interpretation is that this faulting and paleotopographic evolution occurred during this multi-phase tectonic activity during the assembly and breakup of the Rodinia supercontinent over several hundred million year interval. And so together this complicated history contributed to this singular feature that we know as the great unconformity in the Grand Canyon. That's interesting. So your thermochronology enables us to infer a possible link between the multiple elevation changes and the resulting erosion and the very large-scale tectonic events happening at the time from the assembly of Rodinia supercontinent about a billion years ago to its subsequent breakup about 750 million years ago. So let's talk about the long-term history of continental cores or cratons the conventional thinking has been that these ancient blocks of continental lithosphere have just basically sat there since they formed, some of them over two billion years ago. There's a variety of data that clearly indicate that some of these areas have undergone a more active history than we previously realized. We have been acquiring euthorium helium data for samples across the interior of North America that show that some of these areas were buried by multiple kilometers of sedimentary rocks that were eroded and then reburied by sedimentary rocks. And then those were eroded away a second time. And so we can use our thermochronologic tool to decipher 
the spatial extent, the thickness, and the erosion history of these now eroded sedimentary units. And we're deciphering these histories of burial and erosion in places where most people have assumed nothing has happened in that interval. So this raises all kinds of interesting questions then, like why were these areas buried and eroded multiple times when we're in the middle of continents, far from plate tectonic boundaries that traditionally people have looked to to explain large-scale burial and erosion events. In a previous podcast, Carolina Lithgow-Bertoloni talked about dynamic topography and how the elevated topography of some cratons may be caused, at least in part, by the force of an upwelling mantle below. I understand that you've been able to shed some light on that idea with thermochronology. Yeah, this is exactly the kind of problem that we're trying to tackle. So both with some of our work across the North American interior as well as in Southern Africa. Because if you think of how elevations vary in different locations, like the East Coast, like where you are, Oliver, sitting at sea level and me here, mile high here in Boulder, Colorado, you can either look to differences in the thickness and the buoyancy structure of the crust and the lithosphere. So this is like the outer buoyant part of the earth, or you can look to deeper mantle processes that might be driving differences in the elevation. And in the same way, changes in the lithospheric buoyancy structure or changes in mantle flow patterns, which some people call dynamic topography, that can cause elevation change over time. And so if you're sitting near the plate margin, like if you're in the Himalayas or in the Andes, it's easy to say, okay, well, plate tectonic processes that are a consequence of plates sliding back and forth and modifying the crust are responsible for the elevation change. But if you're in the middle of continents, you don't have that as a mechanism. And so a good place to go try to decipher the effects of dynamic topography are in some of these continental cores where you're shielded from the plate boundaries. So you don't have significant plate tectonic effects overprinting your signal. And Southern Africa is particularly interesting because it's one of the most widely cited examples of elevated dynamic topography on the continents. So Southern Africa is a plateau. And unlike all of the other major plateaus on Earth, like the Colorado Plateau or the Tibetan Plateau, those other plateaus were in some kind of a contractional plate boundary setting. So a setting where two plates are moving together when they underwent elevation gain. The Southern African Plateau was completely surrounded by plate boundaries that were pulling apart when it became elevated. And so for this reason, people have pointed towards deeper mantle processes as possibly being responsible for elevation gain. And geodynamicists like Carolina have imaged deep structures in the mantle that might be responsible for that. So how did you go about disentangling the causes of uplift in Southern Africa? So our projects was aimed at deciphering the erosion history across the interior of the Southern African Plateau. And one of the things we specifically did was work on what are called kimberlite pipes. So these things are small volume, volatile rich magmas like volcanoes, but they contain most of the world's diamonds and they come up through these ancient cores of continents. And these things come blasting up from deep in the mantle and they sample the lithospheric mantle and then pieces of the crust and then any of the sedimentary cover at the surface. 
So what we did was acquire thermochronology data on samples collected across Southern Africa to decipher the timing, the history, and patterns of erosion across two different regions there. So one of these regions had a very strong record of lithospheric mantle alteration as recorded by kimberlite pipes that had erupted through that area. And then the other area had relatively little modification of the lithospheric mantle structure. And so what we found is in the area with substantial lithospheric modification, we found a phase of pronounced erosion that coincided with when that lithospheric modification occurred, telling us that lithospheric modification process likely was responsible for the elevation gain and therefore the erosion history that we see in that area. In contrast, in the region that underwent less lithospheric modification, we see a much more protracted erosion history. We see a phase of scarp retreat over several tens of millions of years across the plateau. And because this area underwent less lithospheric modification, this points towards deeper mantle processes, such as dynamic topography effects, that probably contributed to the elevation gain there. And so together, these results indicate that both lithospheric and deeper dynamic processes likely caused the rise of the Southern African Plateau with the relative influences of those two processes varying spatially across the plateau. Wow. So the bottom line is that at least under the Southern African Plateau, we really are seeing the effects of dynamic topography. Yes. Dynamic topography is real, but it is not the only part of the story related to the rise of the Southern African Plateau. Most of the work you've talked about so far has been based on analyzing minerals like zircon or apatite. But what about rocks that don't contain these minerals, such as shales and limestones? Shales and limestones form thick sections in sedimentary basins, but it turns out, you know, shales and limestones, they don't have any minerals that are easily dated or in the past have been easily dated with thermochronology. And so we attempted to date conodonts in shales and limestones. So these are microfossils. These are critters that lived for several hundred million years in the Paleozoic and early Mesozoic. So something like 500 million years ago until maybe 300 million years ago. And they're very common these conodonts, they're actually bioapatite. In many rocks, we date crystalline apatite, but these are actually apatite that is biologically formed, like your teeth are bioapatite. We tried to date some of these materials to develop as a thermochronometer, and it wasn't as easy as other minerals. One of the challenges is that these conodonts, they don't start off with lots of uranium and thorium in them. Like you don't have lots of uranium and thorium in your teeth. These critters did not die. They did not have a lot of uranium and thorium in their bodies. So what happens is these critters die and these conodonts are deposited and they acquire uranium and thorium as they get buried. And what this means is that the uranium and thorium is more mobile. And for a geochronometer, thermochronometer, it's very bad. You don't want your parent isotope to be mobile and be lost from your crystal. There are different conodont components, and so I have not totally given up on this idea, because if you could use this to constrain thermal histories, it would be extremely powerful. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you're even working on lunar rocks. What can thermochronology reveal about those? On the moon, the thermal histories are induced by meteorite impact processes. Early in the solar system, we know that there were lots of impacts, that this caused melting of the surface and planetary resurfacing. And at some point in time, that impact flux declined to modern day background levels. 
And so a big question is when and how did this flux decline? And so in order to figure this out, this requires dating the history of meteorite impacts on the moon. So using uranium thorium helium, we can begin to decipher parts of that history to constrain the timing and the thermal effects, the magnitude of these impact events. Right now we have a new NASA project where we're doing additional work on lunar materials to try to constrain that history. And it's really cool to be working on samples that came back from the Apollo mission. But when you have an impact event, you have a momentary huge heating. Do you then also have a slow cooling history that you can track? On the moon, we have these short, as you say, very intense heating and cooling events. So whatever kinetic models we develop have to be able to handle like, short-term events. But then on the lunar surface, also, it's pretty hot. So we also have to consider the effects of some of these samples sitting at the surface of the moon for a long time and being relatively warm and deconvolve that from the effects of these short, extreme heat pulses. And have you been able to get some results on the bombardment history of the lunar surface? The data allow us to detect a 3.95 billion year old impact event, a 110 million year impact event, and they allow us to limit the temperature of any impact event that would have occurred between those two impacts that I just described. And so that gives us an insight into the impact history and the thermal history at one spot on the lunar surface. But then by working on other samples with different histories, the idea is that by integrating those, that we'll be able to gain a more comprehensive picture of the larger lunar history. For my last question, I want to ask you about the capabilities you dream about having in your lab, especially if there were no funding constraints. What I would really want if I had unlimited funding would be to invest in human infrastructure. Just talking with you today, you can see we deal with the normal spatial scales and temporal scales. So we worry about nanoscale, like how does diffusion occur in our structure? And there's a variety of like material characterization tools and all kinds of new tools that people are developing in other fields that might help us better understand diffusion at that nanoscale. But at the same time, we're trying to extrapolate that to uplift at the continental scale. We're characterizing short experiments in our lab over seconds and hours, and we're trying to extrapolate that to figure out histories back of the moon, back to 4.5 billion years ago. To grapple with this, you really need people who think about that nanoscale. We need to have improved statistics and uncertainty characterization, and people who can do the modeling and the coding, and then people who think about those big problems. And so thinking about how to better use the tools we have and to get people working creatively on all different aspects of the problem, like if I had unlimited money, I would put it into people. Becky Flowers, thank you very much. Thank you, Oliver. This was great. I really enjoyed it. For more about Geology Bytes, as well as pictures and illustrations that support this podcast, you can go to geologybytes.com.